Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. Hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR consultancy for startups Fallowfield and Mason. Today we're joined by Katie Lopez and Nicola Percy, co-founders of Sustainable Nicker Brand Stripe and Stair. Frustrated by the lack of comfortable yet sustainably sourced options, Katie and Nicola sought to create knickers, loungewear and sleepwear for the sustainable shopper who doesn't want to compromise when it comes to style and comfort. Katie and Nicola share their advice today on why building sustainability in at the beginning of your business will make life so much easier when you come to scale and how to tackle that VC process as female founders. Hi, Katie and Nicola. Thank you so much for your time today on How to Start Up. It would be great if you could start with a brief introduction as to who you are and a bit about the business that you started. And perhaps, Katie, you go first. Thank you so much for having us, Juliet. So I'm Katie, co-founder, creative and sustainability director of Stripe and Stare. Um, and I'm Nicola, co-founder and CEO of Stripe and Stare. And what is Stripe and Stare? We make the world's most comfortable knickers. And when did you start? The company started in 2017, but I had been researching and developing the product since about 2006. I was a buyer with my own stores and we were selling sort of contemporary fashion from all over. And I was getting super sick of fashion. It was so difficult with cyclical seasonality of it and the high rents and staff costs and all of those kind of things. But we were selling underwear, like as a goes with to, for our customers. But I got really interested in underwear because women were coming in and they'd come in and buy armfuls of the same brand. And the more research I did into it, I realized that women have a loyalty to their underwear brand like no other part of fashion. So we were selling these amazing, uber comfortable lacy G-strings. And I was like, well, this is great, but we're British and we like a pair of pants. So where can I find some uber comfortable pants for every single day? And this was, remember, a heyday of sort of Victoria's Secret. So you basically either went to Victoria's Secret at one end and got your super sexy stuff, or you went to Marks and Spencer's and bought your stuff that your granny would also be buying and wearing. So it was like there was nothing in the middle that was still uber comfortable that was aesthetically attractive something that we would want to be wearing for ourselves not for men and there was also a time when we were beginning to wake up to the damage that fashion was doing to the planet and so it felt like the right moment to be developing an underwear brand that addressed comfort for women by women rather than by men for women and the sustainability side as well because at that point less than one percent of underwear was sustainably sourced and that's this is something we wear every single day so and you can't buy it secondhand or I don't think many people do so it felt like something that you should really be thinking about where it came from. When you started what was the first thing that you did when you sort of kicked off? Was there a moment where you're like the lights are on? Oh my goodness I can't say I'm embarrassed to say I've been working in fashion for my god 20 years and I can't say but my mother can so I drew a picture of what I thought would be the perfect pair of pants and my mother ran up the first prototype on her sewing machine and I'd met a man who had an underwear factory so I sent him this homemade sample and it just went from there so he did some samples then we did a small production run and what was so great about having the store is I would sell the small production runs to my customers and then I'd be able to talk to them whenever they came back in and said what do you like what don't you like what do you want from your underwear and it was like having I didn't even know I was doing it but I basically had like a six-year kind of daily focus group yeah I mean how lucky is that to find out what people were wanting no, feedback. yeah exactly I remember label gate at the side of the knickers I mean that would that went down badly <laughs> 
one of the production runs, we put the label in the wrong place and it was really itchy. So everyone got mad. And it was, but then after all of this research and development, it became like one of the best selling things in the store. And it sort of felt like the right moment to launch it to the world. Selfridges had come to us and said they couldn't find a sustainable underwear brand like for every single day. So we knew there was an opportunity there. And then I spoke to one of the buyers from an e-tailer in America called Shopbot, who are an Amazon-owned e-tailer. I thought it was only a British thing. I thought American women all wore tiny pieces of lace. And of floss. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and this buyer actually said, actually, no, the younger, cooler customer is wanting a more full coverage because the technology's moved on. And brands like you, where you, there's no VPL, it doesn't ride up, and it's more aesthetically attractive. What defines a sustainable piece of clothing? Well, there is no definition. Yeah, I mean, when you go into the wholesalers, I mean, they say it has to be made out of 30%, 40% sustainable materials. So there is no rule, which is why there's so much greenwashing. And For you, what makes your brand sustainable? What makes you sleep at night going, we are being as sustainable as possible? Well, it's the way we source the fibres. So they're all from an Austrian company called Lensing, and it's a, the actual brand name of the fibres we use throughout our entire range is Tencel. And it's made in an Austrian fibre production plant. They're so far ahead of the curve in terms of sustainability. They've been doing this and working on the research for 30 years. It's all done in the carbon neutral way from non-protected, non-totally regenerated tree sources. And all the raw materials are used in the process. There's no waste. All the chemicals used are recycled. All the water is recycled. It's really hard because everybody will tell you why one thing is better than another thing. So there's no substitute for actually just doing your homework and the thing we always look for is external verification we never ever ever take somebody's word for it and it's the same applies to us we would never want our customers just to take our word for it which is why about 18 months ago we decided we needed some external verification that we are the real deal and doing our best for the planet and that's why we decided to go through the b corp process yes and when did you get certified oh we got certified in july congratulations yeah, it was a lot of work but megan that's worth it well how much work how long did it take you to, from start to finish how much time should people budget for there's definitely a sort of a long gap in the in the middle where you're just waiting to hear back from them. So there's a lot and lot of paperwork and documentation to get to them. Then there's a long waiting gap. The prep work at the beginning, was that really labour intensive and difficult? I would say that was two full days of my time. And there was absolutely no way that I could have done it without a B Corps leader. So really? my biggest piece of advice for anyone wanting to go down this route is get yourself a B Corps leader because the questions and the way they ask them, it's very specific. And you often think they're trying to ask something, but actually they're trying to ask something else. I have ADHD. So filling out forms is like my idea of hell. Yeah. But she just made the whole process really simple and pain-free and really actually enjoyable and made me look at new things in the business. Because just because we're now B Corps certified, you can't just stop there. So yeah, it was a huge amount of work at the very beginning. And as Nicola just said, then we had about pretty much 12 months. I think there's something like, there's only 5,000 companies in the world who've got B Corps, mm. which is actually a problem in itself because it's not that widely known about to the consumer yet. Most people you say we're B Corps too, they're like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. But I think it will become the one that people go to, the standard. And it's getting there. They're very good at their own PR and press are picking up on it. And it's the kind of brand name now. To, there's lots of external recognition that you can get, but B Corp, I definitely think the leaders in terms of that. Well, we loved it because of the sort of holistic view. It's not just about environmental, it's also about social policies as well. So they look at every single part of your business, which we loved about it. And we do think it will become the go-to mm. sort of one that people respect. We hope it will. After all of that work, we push it to 
But that's it. Once you've got it, it's not that you can sit back and forget about it. You have to maintain it and keep getting better. Is that correct? Oh my goodness. I have an Excel document. I mean, with probably 200 rows of improvements we can make to the business because nobody's perfect. Let's just say that. Like nobody's perfect. It's impossible to be perfect. We all know that, but it's just about being as good as you can be. And someone said the minute you turn on a light or use a computer, you're not sustainable. You're using energy. So it's trying to work out how to be less impact. We talk a lot about unintended consequence because, okay, the good example is email versus paper. So everyone thinks sending out a paper catalogue is the work (laughs) of the devil. (laughs) But then actually sending an email to your database takes a huge amount of energy. So you know, there are pros and cons to absolutely everything we do in our lives. I believe that you think, obviously, this is the right thing to do. Would you have run your business any other way? If B Corp didn't exist, would you be looking to something else to try and make sure that you're operating in the best possible way? I think that the surprising thing was we didn't actually have to change a lot or amend a lot to get B Corp accredited. And I think if you start a business in this time and this era, you have to do it right and you have to do it in the most sustainable way possible. So it's very much kind of ingrained in the business from the very beginning, which is why I think it's very hard for those bigger, huge corporations to change everything about the way they think and feel and run the business. It's a big deal. And if you embedded it at the beginning, presumably, then it's much easier as you go along rather than trying to shift the Titanic later once you've you've built it. Exactly. (laughs) Easier to start from scratch. So our brand sort of pillars at the beginning were always comfort, female-led, female-founded. So a product by women for women. And the sustainability part as well were always our key sort of founding principles and they haven't changed since day one. So everything we've done, I mean, Nicola and I talk about this a lot, don't we? We've we've both been through a lot of stuff in our personal lives. We've both worked in toxic environments. So actually starting a business, we were both, what, early 40s? Were we late 30s, early 40s when we started? Well, you keep aging yourself. (laughs) I know, I keep saying what, I'm 48 and I'm only 46. I don't know what's wrong with me. But because we both were experienced, we knew how not to do things. And I think there was a lot to be said for that. Like, I wish we had a bit more energy like we had in our 20s because it's hard work. But, you know, the lessons we've already learned and the pitfalls not to fall into, I think has been hugely important to the success of the business. And one of our first rules that we made was we only work with people we like. doesn't matter whether it's suppliers, anyone. They weren't nice they weren't fun and they didn't get shit done we were just like no not working with you yeah it sounds like a really kind of naive cliche but actually it has stood us in the best stead hasn't it and we now have the most heavenly team and how does it work as co-founders? Do you know both of your strengths and both of your weaknesses and kind of divide and conquer? We're so lucky that we are literally... Chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I do anything, Katie just rolls her eyes. It's just like, uh, yeah. That's no, no anything creative. <laughs> and equally, I'm like, anything, there's a tech issue. I'm like, oh, back away, back away. <laughs> and Nicola... I do all the boring stuff and Katie does all the fluffy stuff. It's basically how we... But do you think that's... In- important in a co-founder to find someone it's essential it's absolutely essential because I think if we were treading on each other's toes it would be a disaster but because our lanes have have always been so clear-cut from the word go because we'd worked together and knew each other really well before we founded this business and that was one of my biggest pieces of advice is you have to surround yourself with people you like because you're going to spend a lot of time with them and somebody you can trust so implicitly. So given Stripe and Tear has had exponential growth and I in my eyes world domination I see you everywhere I hear about you everywhere like Elizabeth Day is one of your biggest fans. I love Elizabeth. (laughs) My god that is huge huge praise. How have you gone about that? How have you built your brand? I think at the beginning of lockdown we were very 
lucky with a few key influencers who propelled us in the States. We Katie designed an insane tie-dye print that suddenly went bananas and seemed to embody what everyone was feeling in lockdown, the tie-dye, the bright, the colourful, the cheerful. And then obviously everyone in lockdown was shopping for comfort, shopping for sustainability, shopping independent brands. So we fell into that huge word of mouth effect. We had some great influencers. We did some podcast sponsoring that worked really well with us. It's always been for us about tying in with deeply authentic female voices who people trust and they have their tribe of people who are so engaged with them. But the number one thing for us is that any partnership is totally genuine and authentic because we have a strong belief that women know when someone's advertising something for the check, for the paycheck. So from day one, and we had no budget for marketing, did we, at the beginning, Nicola? I mean, literally not one zero pennies in our budget and so everything was done by product gifting and people and we just used to say to people if you like it talk about it and if you don't don't basically but luckily 98% of women who try our knickers say they're the most comfortable we've ever had so we got really lucky literally from the word go with people organically talking about us genuinely loving the brand and I think that's it you've created a product that is genuinely a success and I think people talk about PR and obviously I'm in communication so I'm familiar with this it's like oh you spin a story and it's like well fortunately I've never had to work on a brand I don't believe in myself, but I think that's where the client, that referral, word of mouth is the most important public relations over press relations. That friend of a friend, like if I see a friend wearing a great mascara, I'm going to believe her than something I've read by a journalist over something I've seen in a paid ad campaign. So that, that tiered effect of influence I know. Yeah, we now have this big marketing budget, but we might as well not bother. Could everyone just go and tell their friends? Because that's still the number one driver of new customers for us is their friend telling them at the end of when people have shot with us. And it's always, my friend told me about these. I think given that you're direct to consumer predominantly, is there anything that you would advise people when setting up their DTC brands? I think again, when we set this business up five years ago versus when Katie and I started businesses 10, 15 years ago, there are so many great platforms that you just plug and play. Got Shopify, insane, absolutely zero cost for new beginners, early starters, zero. You've got all these apps that just plug in and do what you want, and you can create an amazing website within minutes. On the other hand, you can get carried away with all these analytics tools that tell you that you need to analyze your data and actually. You know, we don't have time to analyze the data we have, let alone plug in 400 apps that tell us how to analyze. Although we, we do with the data, we have some key data that we're incredibly focused on. But it's like you have to decide what those metrics are. And for you, what do you look at? What's important for your business without giving your secrets away? I don't think there's any secrets in it. <laughs> We spend a lot of time talking about customer acquisition cost. So that's how much it costs to acquire a new customer. And then on the website, it's just standard average order values, repeat customer rate, conversion rates, it's retention rates, and then you go into lifetime values. And- yeah, probably the number one thing you need to know is your customer lifetime value if you're running a D2C business, because then that will tell you how much you can spend to go and get a new customer. You know how much they're likely to spend over their lifetime. So that's probably the most important metric is the CLV. And I can't run these numbers. We don't run them. We have external people. And this is the point. It's so technical, this data and getting to those, because you've got to have those analytics right, because they tell you how to run your business. Two years ago, Katie and I didn't know what a cohort if someone had said to us what's your CAC I would have been like what are you talking about stop being rude we were too busy rushing around the warehouse trying to pack orders 
And you're doing every single job within the business. Yeah, so don't kill yourself because it's all slow and steady. Our seed investor said that to me at the very beginning because he could see that I'm hectic and chaotic and whatever. And he was like, Katie, slow and steady. What did someone say the other day? You can't eat an elephant in one go. It's all about little bites. So you can't kill yourself because there's always a million things you could be doing, but you just have to be happy with good enough. Perfect doesn't exist. What is it? Done is better than perfect. There's so many of these cliches and they're cliches for a reason, but they give you that level of like, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> but I'm really pleased you touched on the data point because I often talk to our clients about data and they're like, but you're in PR. It's all like long lunches and fluff. Yeah. Tell us how to analyze PR. I still don't know. I still don't know how to do that. <laughs> As someone with OCD, it's a bit of a problem because you can never really say how much value it brings back to the brand, but everyone knows they want it. Do you want a full page in Sunday time style? Yes. Why? I don't know. We know we want it and we know it will work. But the data you can look at is your engagement on your social, your email click throughs your customer acquisition, your value points, your price points. Numbers drive businesses. And I think even in communications, it's so important because you can see the pickup from a pitch or did I pitch to 200 journalists or 500 this campaign? You know, you can really look at the effort you put in. And I think data without it, any business is going to crumble. And a lot of people have said to me, businesses don't fail because they're not a great idea. They fail because they don't have cash flow and people don't look at numbers enough. So, I mean, have you got external advice from people on how to manage your numbers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's critical to always yeah, have a handle on your cash flow. And if it's not your bag, then get advice and hire someone in. And we've managed it by ourselves for a few years. And then now we've got a consultant CFO who's worked in the D2C business for years and years and is insane. That's the weight off my shoulders as well, because it's a lot of pressure to deal with. And there's so many things you can tweak and move and adjust that you need to have that support and knowledge behind you in order to make the right decisions at the right time. It's time you're not spending doing something else. And I think that's, it's important to say, because a lot of people are like, well, I can't afford to hire a CFO. It's like, but you don't need one five days a week. You can have a consultant. Just a couple of hours. Yeah, probably enough to start with. Yeah, having that senior expertise, I've definitely found it in year two, having someone who I can look in the eye and be like, I really respect all of your years in industry. You know better than I do. Help. And putting your hand up and asking for help. Like what's been your biggest moment of eek, help me? Have you had a sort of crisis? <laughs> so many. Well, this is it. You kind of try and forget them quite quickly, but is, is there anything that you'd advise people to be like? Well, we've just got a new CEO, which makes us sound incredibly grown up. It does. I don't feel like we are. I know. She's amazing. She's like a machine. How did you find? Because that's also really hard. We didn't go out and say, we need a CEO. We need someone to tell us what to do. But we met her in March this year because she's come from Bowdoin. And so we just ended up having a lot of meetings with her, a lot of coffees, and she was looking elsewhere. She was very high up at Bowdoin. She'd been there for 15 years, but she felt like she'd learned all she could and got as far as she could there. So she decided it was time to go. And she wanted to go and work somewhere small and exciting and scalable and be part of the growth trajectory. So, yes, we embraced the person rather than went out to find the role. Yeah. And being open to it. I think that's being that flexible. We just felt like we couldn't afford not to because we did all of that analysis about a year and a bit ago. We should talk to you about our VC journey as well at some point. So that was a moment where we decided that actually these, so these analysts, you know, the pros who introduced us to a world of customer lifetime values and CAC, that is customer acquisition cost. But they ran all these, the, all the data and they were like, these numbers are absolutely ridiculous. Your customer loyalty is just insane. One person who said, I've been working at a subscription dog food business where they get a monthly delivery and your retention rates are better than that. I, I still can't get my head around that. I know, it's just like, I know I can't get my head around that either. At what point in your business did you go after investment? Right at the beginning. 
we've had angel investors from the start. So you did angel at the beginning and then you went to VC halfway through? Last year. Last year. And how was that? Hell. No, because you hear it, you read Sifted all the time about how awful VCs can be and how they don't turn up. They're late. <laughs> They're not. Our, our VCs are not awful at all. It's the process. It's the process because it's like getting married. So you have to go on like a ton of dates with all these different people to find out who are the right ones for you. And then Whitney from Flowerbox said the same. She's like, I felt like I was dating, serial dating, you know, within 30 seconds, yeah. if that's going to be my... Yeah, there was one completely naughty person when we told him we wouldn't take his VC funds money. I mean, he literally went mental screaming. So you were turning people down rather than the other way around? Yeah, we turned down about five in the end. It really is like dating. It is. No, it really is. It really is. We got turned down by some, some too. Some said it wasn't the right fit for them. But, but this guy went mental. You weren't on that call, Nick. He went, he went absolutely nuts. Why won't you take my money? Because we only work with good people. <laughs> because of that. Because of that. You're a lunatic. That's why. How in those initial conversations did you know that, was it just gut feeling? Reputation. We did a, a lot of due diligence on them and we had a lot of meetings with them and we'd heard a lot of good things about them. And they're very much, they're bank funded they're called BGS. So it's British Growth Fund that we went for. So they're not like a typical VC. And what was it about them that you loved? So they are funded by banks. So they're a lot less aggressive and a lot, not not commercial, but they're not in it for the short-term wins. All the other VCs we had were, yeah, you can have a 20% discount and you have to exit in five years. And if you don't, then we'll cut your thing off here. And you had it's all very aggressive. And if they don't like what you're doing, they'll just kill the management team and chuck you out of the business. Oh, and this is your baby. Yeah, the stories are true. People have said, be really careful where you get investment support from because you have worked so hard to be autonomous and then you're giving a little bit of that up in a way. Yeah, it's a big decision and it's not for right for everybody. I mean, because the other thing that we found with the process, and I say we found, but actually it was Nicola who took the brunt of it on, but the due diligence process. So basically from start to finish, after we'd signed the term sheet and decided the VC fund that we were going to go with, do you want to talk about the due diligence that you then had to go through or we went through? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know how to ex- to describe it, but because it seems so sort of arbitrary now, a bit like when you climb a mountain and you think, this is hell on earth, I must remember this. And then you get to the top and you think, oh, that was all right. It was just a lot of meetings with a lot of lawyers, a lot of paperwork, a lot of back numbers, a lot of crunching. You know, you have to get into every single thing. They want to see every single contract you've ever had, every single agreement, every single... There's just so much information and data and numbers and crunching and really boring legal meetings to have. You can spend two hours talking about the importance of whether something's reasonable or not to a total arbitrary end. You're like, well, why have we just spent two hours and £400,000 discussing that? I mean... And meanwhile, you're trying to still run the company and grow the business. I, and let's not forget that you have a very busy job that you're supposed to be doing. And then this becomes a full-time job. So I, I don't think you'll speak to anyone really who goes through that process and doesn't yeah. say it's very distracting from your yeah. day job. It really was distracting. And why did you decide it was right for you to go off? Because we really wanted the experience of a growth partner behind us to help us with all the challenges of growth. who has been there, done that, has got 200, 300 other consumer brands on their portfolio. who have seen it all 
and just that depth of knowledge and experience is crucial. Yeah, the network as well into, like we were just talking about, they helped us find our CFO, Gerald, who's been amazing, you know, so it was much more than about money for us, the reason to go to them. Like we actually had raised everything we wanted for the round from angels, but we took the call to have taken the VC money for the expertise and the extra added value that they would bring. Have you felt like the business has shifted since you've done that? Do you feel like it's a whole other thing or is it just bigger and better than you could ever imagine? I think it's made us grow up a bit, just do things. And I mean, we're still, we're not, God, by no means are we there, but everything was very reactive and chaotic is the wrong word, but we just, we got a lot of shit done. We were really productive, but it's just about putting in a bit more structure and systems, which I hate, but we need. And is there one last golden nugget piece of advice that you'd like to offer a new founder when they're thinking about starting a company? Well, mine would be research, 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 know exactly what you're doing, plan, plan, research. But then there's always an element of risk in any startup. We're so passionate, aren't we, Nicola and I, about female founders. It's the depressing statistic is only 1% of investment money goes to female-led businesses. And I think 12% is to mixed team businesses. So it's a massive oversight. And the problem is, as women, I think the problem is not actually with the investors putting the money into businesses and not trusting women. I think it's about women not being very good at putting ourselves forward and taking risks. I think like BGF was saying to us the other day, the problem is they get business plans coming in every day. And typically when they get a business plan, they will halve the numbers and say, okay, so if they say they're going to do £100, let's halve that and see if it still works. Problem is with the female plans they get, the women are risk averse. Typically, they've already done the halving. So then if you do the halving of the halving and you get down to 25%, it suddenly Mm. doesn't look like a very exciting business. So we're really keen. That's really good advice. So just go in punching. Well, I don't know. No, because we like to always outdo our targets, but go for it, I think is probably it. Like, you know, being a single mother, this is the only career I could have, which gives me a decent salary and is flexible enough that I can see my children. So it's the dream, basically. So there's a lot to be said for it. Huge congratulations on everything you've achieved at Stripe and Stare. It's phenomenal. And I hope you take a breath and pat yourselves on the back and think we've done that. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. If you'd like to contact Katie or Nicola, you can find all of their details in the show notes, along with a recap of the advice that they have so kindly shared. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it will really help other people starting a company discover it. 